0: In the passage that we're reading this morning, it is Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. There's some geographical references, and many times we read and pass right over those. In this case, what I want to call your attention to is a city by the name of Antioch. We read it frequently in the book of Acts. Let me pause here for you for just a second because it helps set the stage for what Tom's going to be teaching us. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Number one was Rome, number two was Alexandria in Egypt, number three was Antioch, they estimate maybe a half a million people lived in this city. Now the three Roman emperors, Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus, and Claudius, all three built many temples and public buildings in Antioch. Herod the Great, who we know from the uh, birth of Christ, was a personal friend of Caesar Augustus. It's it's good to have friendships in high places. Herod, not to be outdone, had a a thought process that went like this. If you're going to go, go big. As you know, he was known for building things all over the place. In Antioch, he built a street down through the middle of the city, two and a half miles in length, and it was paved with marble. When you, Next time you go to Lowe's and you look at the price of marble per square foot, <laughs> you, you think about that. All right. So this city was strategic for the growth of the gospel. Let's read what's happening here in preparation for our teaching time. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith." and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for the city of Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and it came about that for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place during the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living back in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders in Judea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word goes forth just as you said it would from Jerusalem to Samaria to the other parts, uttermost parts of the earth. We thank you. You've given us your word. We thank you for Tom. We pray for his teaching and that you would... Work through us to glorify yourself. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Good morning.
1: This morning we uh, we move in the in the text to the the third phase and the final phase of Jesus God ordained uh, progress for the advancement of the gospel. This is really quite an amazing passage and God has been setting the stage for, for these events through everything that we've seen in the last couple of chapters the conversion of, of Saul, um, the vision that God gave to Peter in chapter 10, Peter's meeting with Cornelius and the events that followed that meeting and in his uh, interaction with the, the Saints in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8 just before he ascended back to the right hand of his father Jesus said, to his apostles, uh, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, the first and most important thing for us to keep in mind about the progress of the gospel that Jesus decreed and foretold in that verse is that that progress, that expansion of Christ's church into all the world would come about by the work of the Holy Spirit. It was, it was the, the Spirit poured out upon the people of God and dwelling the people of God that would be the, the um, equipping that was required in order for this marvelous plan to take place by God's design. In Acts chapter 8, we saw how the Holy Spirit had propelled the spread of the gospel into the second phase of uh, the, this commission that Jesus, uh, that Jesus declared. So he said in Acts 1-8, you would start in Jerusalem and then in all Judea, which is the region in which Jerusalem is situated, and then in Samaria, and then to the remotest parts of the earth. Well, we've gotten that far in the chapters before this, uh, up as far as Samaria. Now uh, now we're getting to that third phase. The, uh, and again, the means by which the Holy Spirit brought about that second phase of the gospel, the movement into Judea and Samaria, the, the way that the Spirit accomplished that was to by driving many of the Christians out of the city of Jerusalem through persecution. And... It's it, When we get to this chapter that we're in, in chapter 11, it's exceedingly important for us to see the specifics of how God brought about that persecution. It was persecution by Jews against the church, and there was one particular Jew who was uh, at the center of that persecution. Immediately after Luke's account, in chapter 7 of of Stephen's powerful indictment against the Jews that culminated in Stephen being stoned to death, the very next thing that that Luke tells us is this. This is the first four verses of chapter 8. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they, the church, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over over him. But Saul, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word, the gospel. And then it says, and Philip went to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. So the catalyst for the first expansion of the gospel beyond Jerusalem was persecution. And the one man who was the most instrumental in in orchestrating that persecution was Saul of Tarsus, whom we now know as the Apostle Paul. We saw his conversion in chapter 9. And that was an astonishing miracle in and of itself. Now in chapter 11, we find the Holy Spirit moving the church into the third phase of Christ's commission, the advancement of the good news to the end of the earth. This morning's passage begins by pointing us back to events recorded earlier, again in chapter 11, verse 19. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now I'm going to go back to this map, the big map, and try to lay out what some of these places are. Uh, Those two verses speak first, in verse 19, of one particular group of Jewish Christians, and then in verse 20 of a different group of Jewish Christians. The first group in verse 19 was made up mostly of Palestinian Jews who had come to Christ. They made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now Phoenicia is this region along the east coast of the Mediterranean that's just northwest of Palestine. Here's the Sea of Galilee. Jesus' hometown was right over here, Nazareth, and Phoenicia, the border between Phoenicia and Galilee was only about 10 miles from Jesus' hometown. Okay, then it says that they, these places, uh, they made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So the, the other place mentioned there is this island, Cyprus, it's just west, northwest of Palestine, due west of Syria. Okay. Um, That's the first group of Christians It says the first group of Christians went to those two places and to Antioch of Syria, which is right here. Now I want to mention that there's another Antioch on this map and it's over in the middle of Asia Minor. That's not the one that's being discussed here, it's the one in Syria. So the first group of Christians... Uh, went to those cities, and then the second group of Jewish Christians that Luke refers to here in verse 20 were most likely non-Palestinian, Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. We know that they were not from Palestine because he says they were from Cyprus and Cyrene. And they came to Antioch, and they began speaking. Literally, they began evangelizing. They began preaching the good news of the Lord Jesus to the Greeks also. Now, Cyrene was on the north coast of what is modern-day Libya in northern Africa, about 800 miles due west of Jerusalem. Jews had been forcibly resettled in Cyrene during the reign of the kings known as the Ptolemies around 325 B.C., and like Jews from all over the Roman Empire, Jews from Cyprus and Cyrene traveled to Jerusalem three times every year for the great pilgrimage festivals that were instituted under the law of Moses. It seems very likely that the Jewish Christians that Luke is talking about here from Cyprus and Cyrene had come to faith because of the resurrection appearances of Jesus that had occurred during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, beginning during the Feast of Unleavened Bread right after the the Passover, right? And perhaps some of them came to faith on the day of Pentecost, which was another big festival in Jerusalem that many had, that brought many people to the city. And they had, some had, had likely seen the, the amazing miracle that God had, had caused on that day. Um, so the Jewish believers who had come from Antioch come to Antioch from Palestine were preaching the gospel only to Jews. That's what Luke says. But the Jewish believers who had come to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene were preaching the gospel to Gentiles in that same city. The word, the word that's translated Greeks here, or Grecians, if you will, people, Greek-speaking people, Greek-cultured people. In this case, it's it is contrasted directly with Jews only, and now Greeks also. So it's talking about Gentiles. The issue here is that the gospel is now coming to Gentiles. Verse 21 says of those who were preaching the gospel to the Greeks, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And we've already seen what a large number looks like in the book of Acts, right? Uh 3,000 new believers in a single day on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, more than 5,000 men by the time we get to chapter 4, and that's not including the women and children. The church was growing geometrically in Palestine. Now, Luke says a large number who believed turned to the Lord in Antioch. Now, that phrase, a large number who believe turned to the Lord, does not mean that the turning came after the believing. Some people get confused about that in the verse. The construction that's used here in verse 21 uh, is often used of two actions that are simultaneous. So the meaning would be something like a large number in believing turned to the Lord. The repentance and belief that are necessary for salvation... Are works of the Holy Spirit that always occur together. Every person who repents also believes. And it's the Spirit who causes both. In most passages, we see the turning spoken of before the belief, but here we see the two parts of this saving transformation spoken of together as one. Now, I know that my own personal experience, personal experience must never be the basis of anyone's theology but I can tell you that that the turning of my heart and my attention and my affections to Jesus happened at the same time as my belief there is no way that I could put those two things on a timeline with one before the other because they happened simultaneously in my in my experience all right now Luke tells us that a large number of people in this third largest city of the empire had come to trust in Jesus and had been brought out of eternal darkness into the everlasting light of life in Jesus Christ. And what what we must know is that this happened in a pagan stronghold known as Antioch. This was a miracle of the highest order. I want you to Put yourself for a moment into the shoes of the apostles of Jesus back in Jerusalem. When they learned what the Holy Spirit was doing in Antioch, uh, this mighty work that was going on among pagan Greeks, (laughs) I'm sure they were saying, praise God, this is marvelous, this is amazing. But who is going to teach and shepherd and nurture all these new Gentile believers that didn't know anything about the one true God until just now? And it wasn't as if the apostles didn't already have their hands full with the explosive growth of the church that was happening in all parts of Palestine. When the apostles learned of this miraculous work of the Spirit in Antioch, they promptly sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And uh, before we go, I want to mention a couple of other things about Antioch. Um, Antioch was known as a um, playground for licentiousness, for sexual immorality, for paganism. Daryl Bach talks about the fact that there were like Zeus, Apollos, uh, Tukey, there's, there's a whole bunch of gods that had temples in Antioch or five miles away in a city called Daphne. And the, the nature of the activity that went on in Antioch is kind of hard for us to comprehend or to, to fathom, but it was a, it was a culture... Of, that was pervaded by pagan sacrificial feasts. This was their, their big mode of public entertainment, okay? And because there were so many gods and so many temples, there was almost always a place you could go to participate in one of, these, one of these pagan feast festivals. And there was this thing called cult prostitution that went on in all of the big cities in the Roman Empire where there were pagan gods, temples to pagan gods and cult prostitution was a, a ridiculous but but uh a, an abominable thing that went on where essentially uh men would would buy the services of these cult prostitutes and in doing so they were sort of showing the gods how it was done they're they're basically eliciting from the gods fertility for their own family for their flocks and herds uh their eliciting from the gods the provision of all kinds of material blessing. And it's, a, it's the, the whole picture is, a, is a, a manipulation of these gods. And at the same time, by paying these cult prostitutes, they're helping to finance the, the priests and the facilities at these various temples. So it was quite a racket. And again, if you and I, you know, if we wanted to... Uh, take our family out for some, some fun. We might go to you know an arts festival or the state fair. Well, these guys would go to pagan sacrificial feasts and they would engage in these, all these kinds of behaviors, carousing, drunkenness, eating meat, food sacrificed to idols, and then the, the, the cult prostitution. So this city was a disaster morally, and that was very typical. Very, very typical in the Roman Empire. When we were in Corinthians, we talked about this very same phenomenon in the city of Corinth because it was a big hub uh, for for commerce and for the movement of goods. Um, Antioch also was a prosperous and large city. So when the apostles learned of this miraculous work of the Spirit in Antioch, they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Luke first introduced us to Barnabas back in chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. He told us Barnabas was a Levite from the island of Cyprus. Remember, we just saw that island just west of Palestine. And his born name was Joseph. It appears that the apostles of Jesus had renamed Joseph Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, and he was aptly named the second time we saw Barnabas was in chapter nine, verse twenty-seven. The resurrected Jesus had blinded Saul of Tarsus, <laughs> the very man who was spearheading the fierce persecution of Christians everywhere that Christians could be found. Saul had been on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus in Syria when they encountered when that encounter with Jesus happened. And I should uh, I should point out something here, just and I want to do this briefly. I don't want to. Create confusion, but Luke doesn't go into this particular thing in the book of Acts. But if you read the book of Galatians, you might get a little confused, so I want to just sort this out real quickly. In Galatians chapter 1 and 2, we learn that after his stunning and miraculous conversion, the apostle Saul, whom we know as Paul, did not return directly to Jerusalem. Luke goes to that event, uh, to Saul 's return to Jerusalem next in his in his narrative um, but in, in chapter nine, but in Galatians we find that Saul spent three years in Arabia and then he came to Jerusalem, where he stayed for only fifteen days and It was at that point that Saul first met Peter and James the brother of Jesus and I believe that is when Barnabas first defended and commended Saul to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, as we find in chapter 9. And those leaders were quite understandably uh, skeptical about Saul, and they were very protective of the the church. And they had all heard the stories about what Saul had been doing before this supposed conversion. So they they were skeptical. In Acts 9.27, it says Barnabas took hold of Saul and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. So if it hadn't been for God's use of Barnabas, who knows if Saul would have ever gotten beyond that point in terms of his usefulness to God. Barnabas was a son of encouragement. Now in Acts 11... It is Barnabas, the son of encouragement, whom the apostles wisely send to strengthen and to build up the newborn church in Antioch that is made up overwhelmingly of Gentiles. I also want to mention in the the city of Antioch, there was a pretty healthy contingent of Jews, but at most it was about 15% of the population. So most of the people in that city were Gentiles. Now, I believe that the the that verses 23 and 24 are the real heart of this passage. It says, "Then when he Barnabas had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and he began to encourage them the saints all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord." It says, Barnabas was a man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now that is the kind of instrument that God delights in using mightily. Considering the fact that everything that we see in this book is the work of the Holy Spirit, what God, the, the people that God has used most mightily throughout history, the history of the church are those in whom the Spirit manifests himself Most powerfully, most vividly. And Barnabas was one of those men. It says, when Barnabas reached Antioch, he, quote, witnessed the grace of God. I love that. (laughs) Barnabas knew with great certainty that he was entering into a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit that he himself had had nothing to do with before this point. So he knew from the get-go that however the Spirit might choose to use him there in Antioch, he, Barnabas, was entirely dispensable. One of the most foundational things that you or I need to know about how God, how God things get done is that they get done with or without me. Like several others in this room, I got saved during the latter part of what is widely known as the Jesus Revolution. I just watched the recent movie by that name two nights ago, the first time. It was about the marvelous revival among young people in this country that started in California and then it eventually went to every state in the United States, including to my little town of Aleef, Texas. Some of my close friends, when I was a very new believer, traveled to California to connect with the, the little church that became a big church in Costa Mesa called Calvary Church, where, this, where the movement had gotten its start. One of the two men who were most influential in the movement was named Lonnie Frisbee. Quite a name, right? He was a, a, a hippie and had formerly taken every kind of drug there was, and he had gotten saved. The other was Chuck Smith, who was a a middle-aged pastor in a small church. It's quite a story, but as the movement gained steam and turned into the small group turned into thousands, Lonnie came to the conclusion that he was indispensable to the work that God was doing. And he was 100% wrong. The work continued long after he ceased to be part of it. In fact, by the time by the time I came to faith, uh, together with a lot of other people, through my high school biology teacher, Lonnie was out of the picture in California, and he was out for quite a, quite a time. Then later reconciled with Chuck and came back, but. What are, I say all that to point out one very important thing that, we, that I believe is very clear in, with this person, Barnabas. A godly man like Barnabas understands that God doesn't need him any more uh, than he needs you or me okay. to get his things done. Uh, Barnabas simply walked into a work of God's grace that had already been very much underway, and it says, Barnabas rejoiced and began to encourage the many new believers there in Antioch with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Uh, The old American Standard Version translates this exhortation like this, Barnabas exhorted them that with purpose of heart they would cleave to the Lord. I think that's good wording purpose of heart, that means intentionality, that means deliberate, sober intentionality. They would cleave to the Lord. God gets things done in and through the church of Jesus Christ when his redeemed ones hold fast to him purposefully, intentionally, and faithfully. The Christian life is never easy, And the Christian life is never passive. Godliness doesn't happen to you. It is God's work, absolutely. But godliness, godliness requires that we have our eyes on Christ. The powerful and purposeful and eternally useful work of God through his church happens when we take our God-ordained commission seriously and soberly and we keep our eyes on the author and perfecter of faith, Jesus. There, uh, Hebrews 12 tells us there's no other way to run the race. Now the phrase considerable numbers in verse 23 is, is the exact same in the original as in verse 21. So when Barnabas got there, he saw that a, that a very large number who believed had turned to the Lord. Now Barnabas exhorts and encourages and builds up the church and a very large number come to faith. God used Barnabas' spirit-directed encouragement to this church to make a large church a whole lot larger. Consider again the situation here in Antioch. In the face of fierce persecution from the Jews and ever-present demonic opposition in the form of a deeply entrenched culture of idol worship, the wildfire of the gospel of Jesus Christ empowered and fueled by the Holy Spirit, working in his people, was continuing to spread. The gospel was continuing to spread unabated. The fire was not being quenched, no matter what it faced in terms of persecution and opposition. In verses 25 and 26, God sets before us a beautiful irony that only he could cause to happen. This is God showing off, as only God can legitimately do. We saw in Acts chapter 9 that after the stoning of Stephen, it was an ultra-zealous Pharisee by the name of Saul of Tarsus who had spearheaded the murderous persecution against the newborn church in Jerusalem that had resulted in the Christians there, many of them, scattering out of Jerusalem all over Judea and Samaria that same persecution had now resulted in some of those scattered Christians coming to Antioch with the message of the gospel. And the very same man who had driven that fierce persecution against the people of God, which scattered Christians to places like Antioch, now becomes a God-appointed shepherd and teacher of these new believers at Antioch. God does everything. Marvelous and amazing things, and he knows his instruments. We would do well to stop here for just a moment and, and think about what the what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through Luke's account of these stunning events. We are a church uh, in effect living in exile. We are strangers and aliens in a culture who's disdained for for truth. And for the God who is the source of truth has reached a level that, that I personally did not believe possible even 10 years ago, 15 years ago. It would be so easy for you and me to become discouraged, disillusioned in the face of this, uh, this more and more militantly God-despising culture uh, that is, is waging war. Actively, intentionally, against the Jesus of the Bible and against everyone who is connected with Him, we—you've heard us say this many times. Phil has said it. We wake up every morning behind enemy lines, and if our eyes are not fixed on the Author and Perfector of faith, we will be discouraged. And if they are, we won't. The same Holy Spirit who orchestrated every aspect of this mighty explosion of the gospel that we are beholding here in Acts into places as wretched as Antioch and Corinth and Rome, that same Holy Spirit now dwells in you and dwells in this little flock of God known as Community Bible Chapel, and he dwells in his church in all places all over the world. And the power of the spirit dwelling in you, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter one, is the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in the heavens far above all authority and dominion and power and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That's real power. And that's the power that, that inhabits you in the person of the Holy Spirit and that inhabits this church we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God still has people in every place, from every tribe and language and nation of the world, whose hearts he has already prepared to respond with childlike faith to the good news of eternal life and forgiveness from sins in Jesus Christ alone. A gift that is freely given to all who, in believing, turn to him. Now, that turn of the heart from rejection of God to faith in Jesus is always and only the work of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men. It, It will never happen because a particular culture in a particular time is less resistant to the truth than is the case with any other culture at any other time. Antioch, there was every reason to think that the gospel could not breach the fortress of Antioch, but the gospel destroyed that fortress and brought its walls down. (laughs) The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. The turning of one heart to Jesus or of many hearts to Jesus will never happen because the church is more mature in a particular place or time in the world than it was in some other place or time. And that turning will never happen because the church finally found the right method for making the gospel easier for people to accept than it was before. Revival happens only when and where the Holy Spirit makes it happen. And that's whether it's the revival of one soul or of 3,000 souls in a single day. This is the work of God. And that makes us dependent. And what do dependent be- people do? They depend. And that means we are a church that must be constantly in prayer praying for the people all around us that God has set in our path who don't know Christ. Because without that prayer, our hearts are not right before God to be useful to him. And that prayer, God, God magnifies that prayer and he, he, he reaches into many hearts and he, he just lays them bare before the, the, the gospel that this morning we acknowledged is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So if you are prone to think that you can never be used as mightily as a man like Barnabas or Paul or Peter or Stephen or Philip, or if you believe there is some person in your life who is too hardened against Christ ever to be saved, then know this, beloved. The battle belongs to God and God alone. The weapons are his. The armor is his. The victory is his. Human beings, even those as fiercely hardened against Jesus as Saul of Tarsus, are no match for the Holy Spirit. You and I, just like Barnabas and Paul and Peter and Stephen and Philip, are merely soldiers in his army. Taking up those weapons and putting on that armor and following the captain, of the heavenly hosts of the living God, whose name is Jesus, to the front lines of whatever battle he chooses to to bring us into. And and the outcome of all of those battles was decreed before anything existed except God. We're on the winning side. There are men and women and children coming to faith in the most God-forsaking cultures of this world right Now, if you don't subscribe to any missionary magazines or periodicals of any of the news that is sent out by some of the leading missions organizations, you ought to do that. You can get most of them online and have your eyes open to what God is doing all over this world right now in some of the most closed and Cut off nations in the world, places where you would think it might not be possible for the gospel to penetrate. God is doing astonishing, astonishing work right now. And we have every reason to believe that that same thing will happen right here in Richardson, Texas. And that it will happen through people just like us. In the verses we read... This morning, one man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith was made an instrument of God to powerfully grow and fortify the newborn church of Jesus in a a playground of godlessness. Again, never believe that God cannot use you to accomplish that same kind of great and eternal good during, during your brief time on this earth. Here's how God gets things done. Godly men and women saved only by the undeserved grace of God and Jesus Christ, exhorting and encouraging one another by the power and authority of the indwelling Holy Spirit to cleave to Jesus, to pitch our tents in Jesus, to camp out in Jesus, and to never take our eyes off Jesus. One of the most beautiful facets of the community that God has created by bringing sinners into union with Christ is is on full display in this chapter and that is Christian unity. Jews and gentiles part of the same spiritual household of God. God has torn down every single wall that mankind has ever created between one group of people and another. This church in large measure is a beautiful manifestation of that very thing. The church of Jesus Christ is both exclusive and inclusive. It is exclusive because you cannot be part of it until and unless you put your faith in Jesus to save you from the everlasting condemnation that we all rightfully deserve. His blood poured out for you on the cross is the one and only payment that will ever suffice to pay your sin debt to God. And His righteousness. Covering you as a gift is the only merit, the only merit you will ever have in the eyes of a perfectly holy and perfectly righteous God. There is no other merit. And that's how you will be qualified to dwell in his presence forever. It's a gift or it's not at all. So no human being can be part of the spiritual household of God until and unless he puts his trust in Jesus. And because Jesus made it crystal clear that most people by far will never do that, most people will never trust in him, that means that the community of God is very, very exclusive. But once God brings a person to that childlike faith in Jesus, he or she becomes part of the only community that exists that does away with every point of division that has ever been been raised up between human beings. Every single point of division. The church is the most inclusive community in that respect that will ever exist. It doesn't matter if you're a billionaire or a homeless person. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or a free man. It doesn't matter if you have two X chromosomes or one X and one Y. It doesn't even matter how you feel about whether you have two X chromosomes and one Y. It doesn't matter if you grew up knowing a whole lot about Jesus and the Bible or if you came from a religious or cultural background that knows nothing about Jesus or the Bible. It doesn't matter if your life before you came to trust in Jesus was wild and self-indulgent or whether you were a poster child for parental compliance. How many of those do we have? I'm sorry, just kidding. The sin that condemned every single one of us perfectly leveled the playing field before we came to Christ. And the grace of God in Jesus Christ, which is the one and only cause of our right standing before God, perfectly levels the playing field now that we are in Jesus Christ for all who trust in him. That's what these chapters are about. That's what chapter 11 is about, a level playing field. Jew and Gentile made one in Christ. All right, just a few minutes here. The last part of this chapter, verses 27 to 30, uh, Luke's brief narrative here about the church's explosion of growth in the midst of a playground of paganism uh, ends with yet another miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in Christ's church. Even in its infancy, this church in Antioch became an exceedingly generous church, uh, reaching out to nurture and to build up Christ's church in Judea, where the persecution was at its most intense. A believer, a prophet named Agabus, came from Jerusalem with some other prophets, and through Agabus, God told these new believers in Antioch that a great famine was about to happen all over the world. Luke tells us that that famine did in fact come about during the reign of the emperor of Rome known as Claudius. Claudius ruled from 41 to 54 AD, and there was in fact a series of famines during uh, during his reign. I know I'm supposed to put the word AD before the dates, but all right, the response of the Antioch saints, the response of the Antioch saints to this prophecy of famine should get our attention. Having just received advance notice of a catastrophe that would make survival challenging for everyone, including themselves, what did the Antioch believers do? Well, they gathered gathered up money to send to other Christians, not to hoard for themselves. And they sent that gift by the hands of Barnabas and Saul to the saints in Judea. Now, how does that compare with the way most people in our culture? react when they become convinced that a large-scale catastrophe is about to happen, that has the potential to limit everyone's access to the necessities of life. Well, we all got to see exactly what that looks like in March of 2020, didn't we? Debbie and I were at a Airbnb in Kerrville, Texas, and that morning, March 17th, I believe, 2020, we went to the Walmart picked up a few things and everything was normal. Later that day, we went to a restaurant in Kerrville and then we stopped at the Walmart again. And you know the rest of the story. The paper aisle was empty. The bread aisle was empty. The coffee section was empty. I still haven't quite figured this out. We know how the world reacts when the possibility of a catastrophe is looming. They hunker down and hang on to everything that they've got. But here's how God's stuff gets done. The people of God, when they face a threat in this world, open their hands and take care of one another. And God uses that powerfully. Read John 17. The unity of God's church is absolutely essential to the progress of the gospel. It's how the world knows that the Father sent the Son, and it's how the world knows who we are. Jesus said, by this they will know that you are my disciples, that by the love that you have for one another. Not surprisingly, it was not Jerusalem that became the base of operations for Paul and Barnabas as they, as they began the missionary journeys that spread the gospel all over the Roman Empire in one generation, even into the household of the emperor of Rome. It wasn't Jerusalem that became the most mightily used sending church in the first generation of Christianity. It was Antioch. May this church be like that church. Loving Father, we ask that you would make this local flock of yours like the church at Antioch. Give us leaders full of the Holy Spirit and of faith who call us as we call one another, with resolute heart to cleave to Jesus. Bind our hearts together in Christian love, allowing no barrier or division between us, because you have made us one in Christ. Give us hearts filled to overflowing with the love of Christ so that we may love unselfishly, generously, and joyfully. We ask it in the name of the perfect shepherd of the sheep, our Savior and our Master, Jesus Christ. Amen.